Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Lamp. I'm your host, James Lampman. And my guest today is a soul transformation specialist and also a master hypnotist, hypnotist Miss Kelly Ware. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So that probably was the most interesting introduction I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> because I want, we got to stop, we, because master hypnotist and a soul transformation specialist. So let's start with the soul transformation specialist. I want you to define exactly what that is. Um, so a soul transformation specialist is someone who specializes in helping people transform their lives from the inside out. The uh, sum total of your life experience is a reflection of what's going on in your soul. And so if you are not in love with your life, it means that there's something off internally. And so it is my job to help people to transform their thinking, transform their emotions, and transform their motives, which are the three aspects of the soul, uh, so that they can live the life that they desire to live. Now, how did you get into this? Wow. Um, so I have experienced just about every form of trauma, specifically sexual trauma, that a person can experience um, from being molested starting at age four um, to being sexually assaulted to being in a domestically abusive relationship where I was sexually assaulted at least two to three times a week over the period of almost two years. Um, I've come through a lot of things. I've experienced, um, you know, sexual harassment on the job. Um, and having experienced all of these things, um, they all left a major impact on my soul. And so I had to do the work to transform my soul because I did not like the life that I was living and I did not like the person that I had become. Um, and so because of everything that I experienced, and having done the work, um, I felt called uh, very clearly by God to uh, help people to overcome the things that I've overcome. A lot of people find it taboo to talk about those subjects. Um, and because they don't want to talk about it, anything you don't reveal, you cannot heal. And so um, God has given me a specific call, and it's why I've gone through everything that I've gone through so that I can help uh, usher people who have gone through that out of the trauma and into the triumph. And so that's how I got there. You, you said most people don't want to talk about that because it's so, so traumatic. How did you gain the strength to talk about it? So um, I had reached a point in my life um, when I was in my mid thirties um, where I just, I was just tired I was tired of the life that I was living. Um, and I've always been a pretty bold person. Um, however small, <laughs> I've always been the loudest mouth and the boldest one um, in the bunch. And so um, coupling who I am innately as a very forthright and bold and honest person, with the fact that I was tired of living in the shadows of the things that had happened to me, um, I finally just decided to speak out about it and um, begin the process of doing the work. And in doing the work, I wrote a book 
about the things that I had experienced, um, the impact that they had on my life and some of the work that I did to come out of, um, you know, the, the pressure, the weight, and um, the bitterness of the trauma that I experienced. Let me ask you, um, <laughs> the, the people that you saw that, that, was, that was causing these traumatic experiences, what was, your, what was it like when you would see them you know, before you got, before you, you know, started to do the soul work and then compared to what you would feel as see, compared what you would feel when you saw them afterwards? So um, before I wanted them dead, I wanted them to die. I felt like what they did to me was deplorable and despicable and I wanted them to die. Um, but after doing the work and really um, becoming transformed in my soul, like the woman that I am today is not the woman that I was 10 years ago. Um, and after doing the work, um, I am friends on social media. Like they follow me on social media. They reach out to me um, and I have no ill will towards them. I have fully forgiven them and don't hold anything against those people um, that have violated me. Um, and so the real work happens through forgiveness and once I forgave them um I was able to be in a position where I would actually help them so yeah wow, wow. um <laughs> that's a lot um because I'm gonna be just as a man um even looking at it from like just as a man watching not seeing it per se personally, but just knowing like a, a man committed those type of crimes against a woman, like it's hard for me, a woman or a, a, another little child, whatever. Like it's hard for me. Like for me, it just feels like it's unforgivable. I can understand. Um, I can understand that. But one of the things that I did in my process was I had to put myself in their position. Um, and that's difficult. That's some hard work. But the young man that molested me at age four, um, he was 18, 19 years old. He had been from foster home to foster home to foster home, never, ever feeling loved. And so I, as an adult and a mother, had to look at this young man um, and say, you know what? He's never been loved properly. So while what he did was deplorable, um, I can see what drove him to do it. And then so fast forward to the young lady who molested me at age seven, right? Because I was molested by a male and a female. She was molested. And so she was doing to me at age 17 years old what she, what was done to her. And so she was just repeating a cycle. So when I was able to place myself in those people's shoes and really see things from their vantage point, um, it was easier for me to forgive them. I didn't say it was easy. It was easier for me to forgive them. And then ultimately, you know, um, as a Christian woman, God said to me, there's nothing that you can do, Kelly, that would ever make me not love you. But there's also nothing that your molester and your uh, rapist could do that would make me not love them. And if I am God and I am perfect and I can forgive them, surely you can too. And it was either forgive them or die in my bitterness. And so that forgiveness had nothing to do with them and everything to do with me. If I did not forgive them, I would have died. 
And I wanted to live. And I wanted to live a life free of bitterness and free of the turmoil that accompanied that trauma. So I, ha- I had no other choice but to forgive them. So did you did you have a, like an actual sit down conversation with them? No, it was all internal work um, that I had to release and let go. Um, and when they uh, reached out to me on very random, not random, but not so random <laughs> occasions, um, asking for um, advice because I am a life coach um, or soul transformation specialist um, because I do that work. They both reached out to me um, and in the, I knew I was healed when they reached out to me and there was nothing but like the desire to actually be of service to them. And so, um, yeah, I didn't have to have a conversation with them. I didn't need an apology from them in order for me to forgive them. Ooh. Man, that's a lot of work. <laughs> it is. How, how long? How long did it take? Like, how, when did you start? How long did it? Yeah, how long did it take to get to that point that you actually forgave them? Um. So I kind of did an intensive. Um, amount of work. So um, I took 40 days of concentrated work on me. And so for 40 days, um, I fasted from food. Um, I fasted from television, no social media, um, and no interaction with my son during that time. Um, I would literally go to work and then come home and journal and pray and go through the steps of forgiveness um, every single day and watching sermons and reading scriptures on forgiveness and really just identifying those areas in my soul that were wounded, that were hurting. Um, I cried a lot. I screamed a lot. um, And I wrote it all out. Um, And that was a part of that the process that I went through for 40 days, imagine crying (laughs) every day for 40 days. Um, But I really focused on getting healed. And so um, during that process, I was able to develop um, certain modalities and certain steps to really helping people to get healed in that 40 days. Um, And so that was the beginning of like the heavy lifting, if you will. But here's the thing about like being whole and being healed in your soul. It's not like a college degree in that once you kind of achieve it, that it's yours forever. It's only yours as long as you maintain it. And so for me, it requires daily maintenance, daily maintenance. And so um, it's something that I practice uh, without fail that is non-negotiable every single day. Well, I have to know what is what does that daily maintenance consist of? So um for me it is scripture reading, it is meditation. Um I meditate twice a day. Um sometimes it's 15 minutes, sometimes it's an hour. <laughs> um, but I'm up at you know four or five o'clock in the morning 
um, to do my meditations. Um, and if I don't get up at that particular time because something else is going on, I make sure that I carve out at least an hour um, twice a day to be able to do that. So when I get up in the morning and before I lay down at night, two hours a day has been spent in meditation, in some level of study, um, in reading, um, you know, different uh, professional, I mean, not professional, I'm sorry, personal development books and things of that nature. So um, it, it's a daily thing of kind of washing my soul to keep it clean. Um, I journal. Um, if there's something that has offended me, something that has happened um, in life that, you know, whatever, somebody got on my nerves or whatever, I go through the process of forgiving them and, and really doing the work of asking myself, why did this even bother me? Okay, what's going on inside of me that this particular issue bothered me? So I go through that every single day to make sure that when I go to bed at night, when I lay down, that I am harboring no ill will, no bitterness nothing in my soul. Um, and because I've gotten so good at it, I can feel it physically in my body when somebody has irritated me, right? It's not, it's not something that will just, I can just suppress and keep moving. No, um, my body physically responds to negative emotion. And so I have to deal with it or it will deal with me. And I don't want any parts of that. So. <laughs> You talked you talked about reading scriptures and meditating. Was there a particular scripture that like really helped you get through this? So um my favorite scripture, um, well, is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not to your own understanding. And in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. And so Leaning not to your own understanding is really the key to this healing process, because to think that someone molested me and then I can have a civil conversation with them is not fathomable to a lot of people myself because I didn't included. lean to my own understanding. Right. Myself included. Right. And so um, a lot of this work was supernatural work. It was me stepping aside removing my pride and allowing the spirit of God to really do this work on me. I didn't, I couldn't, if I was leaning to my own understanding, I would still, I would probably, again, I would probably be dead because the bitterness would have overtaken me. Um, and I, I'll say this, the thing that happened to me, which kind of correlates to me feeling negative emotion in my physical body, it had gotten so bad, right? I had suppressed so much trauma in my body that I had become allergic to water. That if I drank water, if I sweated, if I took a shower, I would break out in hives and I would itch and burn so bad to the point where doctors had to sedate me and put me on medication that would have me sleep 12 hours a day. And it was not until I did the work to forgive those people and release those people that that itching and that uh, that allergy went away. As soon as I chose, because forgiveness is a choice, as soon as I chose to let it go and chose to forgive them, it, it went away and it has not been back since. <laughs> I don't ever want to go through that again. <laughs> so I'm like, hmm, it's either that 
or forgiveness. And I'm going to choose forgiveness every time. Now, let, let me let me ask this because you've heard me say a couple of times, I don't know how you do it. I don't know if I could have forgiven. I probably couldn't forgive him. Did you have people in your ear saying that? Like, how do you forgive him? Like, girl, ain't no way. Or, you know, just things that could that could hinder you from your path of forgiveness. Did you have any of that? I did, um, which is why um, I stopped talking to people about it until I was healed enough to hear the naysayers and still be okay with my decision. Um, and so there were people that, you know, um, that couldn't understand how and why I was going through the process that I was going through. Um, but I didn't care. Like when you get to the point where you can't drink water without breaking out in hives, you don't, you stop, you don't care about what other people say. What you're saying is not healing me. <laughs> what you're saying is not contributing to my well-being. And I had to do something. I had to do something. And so, um, yeah, I had, I, I've experienced that with those people, but at the end of the day, the same people that said that they couldn't forgive, you know, their life is not the life that they want to live. So somebody had it right. And clearly it wasn't them. So. Now you talk about, um, you talked about the fasting, the praying, um, journaling. A lot of this stuff is by yourself. So is it safe to assume you pretty much was on this journey alone? I was, um, but I had to be because how many people do you know that has been molested by multiple people from age four to nine that was sexually assaulted, that was in a domestically abuse, abusive relationship? Um, like no one could understand what I was going through. And I didn't want the naysayers to have an impact on what it was that I was doing. So I went through this process. It was me and God. <laughs> and I went through this process alone and so much was revealed to me. Um, and I'm glad that I did. Now, here's the thing. Going through this process was great, but you don't know how healed you are until you actually have to come out of your bubble <laughs> mm. and deal with other humans. And so, you know, I did a good majority of the work in the bubble, but there was other things that I still had to continue to work on as I came out of that space of, you know, isolation and back into, you know, a normal everyday life. You can't live your life in isolation forever. So, um, you know, the more I interacted and engaged with people, the more certain scenarios would come up to trigger something. And I knew, okay, I got to focus here in this particular area because as healed as I felt like I was in a bubble, I'm not. And so that's been the recurring work um, for almost 10 years now. Okay. Um, you identify as a Christian woman. And we know Christians are always taught, you know, never questioning God, never questioning God. Did you ever find yourself questioning God about why, why did these things have to happen to you? Oh, I surely did. Okay. Um, and here's the thing, right? Um, <laughs> I'm probably going to be a little taboo. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of things that Christians tell you that you shouldn't do 
that is nowhere in the Bible. <laughs> and okay, like questioning God is not offended by your questions. He's God. Like, so yes, I questioned God. I was angry at God. I cussed God out on multiple occasions, left God, didn't want to talk to God because of the stuff that he allowed me to go through. Absolutely, I questioned him. And for a couple of years out of my life, I wanted no parts of God. And even in those moments, he never took his hand off of me. Never. There are things that he kept me from that I know should have consumed me. And so, yeah, I asked and I questioned God, why? Why me? God, I'm 5'4", 125 pounds. Why me? (laughs) Little old me. But... He created me for this. And here's the thing. There's nothing in my life that I would go back and change. Wow. And the reason for that is because there is a calling that is on my life that required those experiences because there are other women out there who have experienced that, who do not know where to turn. They're self-medicating. They're experiencing disease due to unforgiveness and bitterness that is and resentment that is trapped in their soul and we know that that leads to stress and stress leads to illness in the body and illness in the body when it's unchecked leads to death and so because there are women and i'm talking about not just one class or one color of women it's women all over whether you are the executive at a fortune 500 company who's triggered by some of the things that some of the men in the office say, but you can't express or deal with your triggers and your trauma in the workplace. And so you suppress it and you walk around carrying this trauma or the young girl who is living in the hood, who's been taken advantage of, right? I can relate to each one of those women and everybody in the spectrum in between. And so I love what I get to do for other people, but I would not be able to do what I do as well as I do it without having first experienced everything that I've experienced. So I had an option, either look at my trauma as a victim or look at my trauma as a victor. And I decided that I did not want to be a victim anymore and that I wanted to be a victor, and that I would use every experience that I've ever had to benefit and be the survival guide for somebody else. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. Well, I have to ask, how did you find your way back to God? So, (laughs) crazy story. Um, So I've been on my own since I was about 16 years old. And um, I attempted suicide Um, in November of 1996 and it it didn't work and I was mad at God for making me live I felt like he forced me to live and so I figured since he wouldn't let me die um, I guess I better get up and do something with myself and do something with my life and so um, but I was angry so from age 16 to about age 22 I hated God I wanted no parts of it at all, no parts of church, no parts of him. I didn't pray, I, none of that. In fact, I did everything that I was big enough and bad enough to do. And while I'm small in stature, 
trust me, I'm big in energy. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I did any, any and everything I was big enough and bad enough to do. And um, around, uh, I was in the military and I was stationed in Pennsylvania. And this was right after I was finally able to escape um, my abusive boyfriend. Um, I was moving back or getting um, stationed back to the DC area. And I'll never forget it. I went to um, one of my coworkers invited me to a church service. And I was like, mm, no, nah, I'm good. No, thank you. Like, I'm not going to church. And she was like, just come. You know, I really would. I hope you can make it, you know. And so she would ask me every week for six months. And so finally, as I was about to transfer out of um, Pennsylvania, I said, okay, I'll go this last particular Sunday. And I'm just going to go late. So I want them to already be started. And I'm sitting in the last row of the church because I just want to be able to check this block to tell this girl I came here. And then I'm not staying for the whole service. I'm only going to be there for about 30 minutes and then I'm leaving. And so I go to the church late as promised. And um, while I am in the church, the choir starts singing, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, from the bottom of my heart to the depth of my soul, completely yes. And something in me, I can't even, I can't describe the feeling that, but something rose up in me and I started singing so loudly in the church. And as I was singing, people started falling out <laughs> in the spirit. And the pastor of that church um, at the time, I never even got this man's name. He said to me, it's time for you to come home. And the moment that he said that to me, I ran out of that church. I got in my car and I have never been back since. Back and with that church? Not, never been back to that church. Nope. I left. Yeah. The next week, it was that Monday, I was transitioning out of um, Pennsylvania. But as I was driving back from Philly to D.C., the Lord spoke to me and he said, okay, enough is enough and it's time for you to come back. And so as soon as I got back, I found a church and I have been back uh, on the Lord's side <laughs> since then. So, yeah. Wow. Now, you, you, now, in the introduction, I mentioned that you are um, master hypnosis. Um, was that a part of your therapy? So um, I discovered hypnotherapy um, about, oh, what is, about five years ago. So, um, you know, I've been doing this life coaching work um, for almost 10 years. Um, and so I've always just been interested in different things, right? Especially the things that like the church says that we shouldn't tap into. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a rebel <laughs> and so um I had always kind of wondered about like hypnotherapy just something in the back of my mind but um I YouTube went on YouTube and, and discovered um a couple of different people um, that were doing it and so for me I'm like this ain't real <laughs> whatever right but then um I went through one of the um videos on YouTube and I did it myself and it was the 
trippiest experience that I've ever had. And I was like, yo, I got to study this. I am an information junkie. So I'm always researching something. Um, I'm a bit of a nerd. And so um, I just started to research it. And the more I researched it, the more I fell in love with it. Um, the benefits of it is crazy. And so um, I became hooked on it and studied and studied and um, got certified as a, hypno a hypnotist. And then um, that wasn't enough because I'm an overachiever. And I was like, well, I got to achieve the highest level. So <laughs> I got more training and uh, became a master hypnotist. Yeah. How, how does it, so how does a person get in a state of hypnosis? Uh, can you answer that? Or? <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> so um, hypnosis is, to put it in layman's terms, you know when you um, are falling asleep, right? You're not quite asleep, but you're not quite awake. And so there's that kind of mid-twilight zone area that you go into so you're still conscious because you're not asleep but you're not fully capable of like having a coherent conversation mm -hmm. that's kind of the state of hypnosis and um the brainwave level of hypnosis is theta um and so theta is kind of like that twilight space it's it's what you hope to achieve in meditation um so that you cut off your conscious mind um and you tap into your unconscious mind, which is your soul, um, which is the con the connection or the bridge between your conscious mind and your spirit. Your soul rests in the middle. And so you want to be conscious in the sense of you want to be awake in the sense of you're not asleep, but you want to be at a state of uh, relaxation um, so that you can hear audibly with your ears, but it what you hear transitions into your soul easily because you've cut off your conscious mind if that makes sense i know that i'm talking like no, no, it, talking. Makes, it makes sense it makes right sense. and so um that's what happens in hypnosis and all hypnosis is is um it's called auto suggestion where your conscious mind or your analytical mind is shut off it's quieted for and then me as your hypnotist speaks things into your subconscious and then when you come out it's almost like it's locked in so i will take you through a process called deepening um and then a process called anchoring and then i'll take out the bad stuff put in the good stuff and then um we bring you back oh wow <laughs> <laughs> wow it it, 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 it definitely sounds like a it, it's weird because it's 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 crazy because it's it sounds simple, but it also sounds like a lot. It is. So I'll give you a prime example. Um, it, like hypnosis does not require a whole lot of stuff, right? I was able to do it for one of my coworkers. So he smoked for the better part of thirty years, and um, this was back in I want to say twenty eighteen. So he wanted to, um, <laughs> he wanted to stop smoking. And I was like, I can help you stop smoking. And he's like, Kelly, no, I've tried everything. I've done the gum, I've done the patches. I've, I've tried it all, nothing works. I said, let me hypnotize you. And he was like, what? And I said, just try it. If nothing else, that's just one more thing. You can check off the list of things that you tried. So um, 
we found a quiet area in the office um, and he sat in a chair uh, and became fully relaxed. Um, we went through the process. Um, and then when it came to me kind of um, pulling out the junk and putting in the good stuff, I started to speak to him um, and say things like, um, cigarette smoke is disgusting. Um, my body rejects cigarette smoke. Uh, so saying all of these things. And then when I brought him back, I said, okay, cool. Go try to smoke a cigarette. And he was like, you know what? Like, I honestly have no urge. He was like, but yeah, we'll see. So this was like maybe nine or 10 o'clock in the morning. So he has, he had a routine. He would smoke as soon as he woke up in the morning uh, on the car ride to work. And after every meal, he would go smoke a cigarette. So lunch time comes around. We go to lunch, right? You know, we're chilling, chit-chatting, whatever. And so um, when we're on the way back to the building, I'm like, all right, I'm showing you how your little smoke break. I'm going in the building. <laughs> About like two or three minutes later, he comes back into the office and he's like, get over here. And I was like, what, what's up? He was like, I just vomited. <laughs> I tried to smoke a cigarette and I just vomited. And I was like, are you serious? He was like, yes. What did you do to me? And I was like, nothing. I've just spoken to your subconscious. Now your body is rejecting um, the cigarettes. That's it. He was like, no, this is crazy. He's like, no, come outside with me right now. I'm going to try to smoke it. I was like, I don't want to see you throw up. Like, this is not. He was like, no, I need you to see what you did to me. So he went outside, he lit the cigarette and immediately started choking and vomiting. And so um, hypnosis 1,000% works, and it is an accelerated means to get to um, a desired outcome. What, so what do you do? Because I'm sure there's... Listen, I'm going to be honest. I'm kind of <laughs> scared of it. So what do, you, what, do you do with, what do you do when you encounter people who are actually scared to get hypnotized? Um, so we do what's called a suitability test. Um, and there are a couple of different ways that you can test for suitability. Um, but the person that's scared, you have you have to relax. It's scary. And um, I do have a lot of people, especially those who want to want help with addressing suppressed memories. Um, and so that type of hypnotherapy is called regression, um, where we are taking you back through um, to a certain period of time in your life. Um, because sometimes people have memory loss, um, because the brain will literally block out certain memories if it is perceived by the brain that it is harmful. Um, which is why, you know, people who witness a murder will have memory block. And then sometime later, certain things will start to flash back to them. Um, and it is because the brain is like only releasing certain snippets of it. So a lot of times, um, in order to help people overcome trauma, um, I'll use hypnosis as um, a modality to help them to kind of go back to a certain place to address whatever they need to address in that place and then come back. And so that can be very difficult um, for folks that um, have trauma that they've not addressed or memories that they've suppressed. So for those folks um, that are willing to do it, because I never force this upon a person, this has to be something that they willingly um, willingly undergo um that person you know i'm there i'm close i'll hold their hand um you know for our, my in-person um guests and the thing about it is is that i don't do regression 
hypnosis with people unless it's in person because it can be very scary. It can be um, a lot, you know, it can be overwhelming. So I want to make sure that they know that they have somebody there um, and that what they're experiencing is real, but at any given point, they're in control and they can come out. And so, um, because again, I'm not in control of you. You are in control of you during hypnosis. And so um, for those folks that are scared, um, but really, really want to do it, um, if they pass the suitability test, then I will um, kind of slow walk them through and, and help them to um, get through it so that they can get what they need. Now, you, when we first started talking about um, hypnosis, you said one of the things you like to do is you like to do things that they say you shouldn't do because the Bible say you shouldn't do it. And I'm sure you get a lot of pushback about this. So how do you deal, being a Christian woman, you identify as a Christian, how do you deal with the pushback from this? Um, so I really don't care about what people think, to be completely <laughs> honest with you. I don't, because um, people don't have a heaven or a hell to put me in, and I'm going to do what I, I'm going to do. Um, and perhaps that's just the nature of who I am. Um, so I don't argue with people. I just don't. Um, people can believe whatever it is that they want to believe, but for those who are genuinely inquisitive about how I can hypnotize people, um, and that not be demonic, <laughs> um, again, <laughs> hypnosis is not witchcraft because I am not in control of the person. That person is in control of themselves. And if, if because again, you're not sleep, you're not unconscious. I haven't put you on any drugs or any medication. You, I do not do hypnosis on people that are inebriated. You have to come in completely sober, right? So there's no um, influence from me that you're under. And so really it's tapping into your soul at the end of the day. And it's you doing the work. I'm just there to help facilitate and guide you. It's you doing the work. So there's no witchcraft involved with that. If a person decides in the middle of, of the hypnosis session that they are ready to stop, then they stop. Okay. Yeah, so there's no, there's no witchcraft involved with that. But be, people will condemn what they don't understand and what they don't have the intellect to do the research on. Mm -hmm. And so before I judge a thing or condemn a thing, which I never do, I always do research. Because there's information widely available about any number of topics and subjects. And so um, before I decide that something is right or wrong, I want to do the research on it. And so I did. And I found that hypnotherapy works wonders for people who feel stagnant and stuck in other um, areas of life. Is it is it even possible to be hypnotized if you're inebriated? Um, so you're already <laughs> kind of in that state. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I would never do that on a person that was, um, drunk because they don't, they can't consent. No, no, I'm saying I, I get, I understand that part, but I mean, I'm saying like, is it even possible? Oh yeah, it's possible. Oh, okay. Okay. It's possible to hypnotize people without them knowing that they're really? being hypnotized. Absolutely. That's scary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's mm, yeah, that's 
Now, I know you would get pushed back for that. Absolutely. And so I would <laughs> never do that um, to a person. Um, but it is possible. Yeah. I don't know. See, that's probably why I'm, I'm not. That's why I'm not trusted to do it because I probably would do it. <laughs> <laughs> I probably would hypnotize somebody. <laughs> so that, that just proves you can't give everybody everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the information is available. People could learn how to do it. Um, and But again, unconsciously or like unknowingly hypnotizing somebody um, they, again, they would have to be in a certain mental state in order for it to actually really happen. Um, I've done it before just as a, a test to see, like, if it was really real. And, yeah, <laughs> it does work. I'm going to transition to a conversation because I, a lot of times I talk to the guests before we start recording just to, you know, gauge how that day was and, you know, get it, you know, kind of just get a rapport so we could all be comfortable talking. And while we were talking, we started talking about love languages. Mm -hmm. Now, for you, I want for you, how important is love languages for Kelly Webb personally? Um, so I think that they're important. Um, they're not everything, but I do think that they're very important. And the way that I see love languages is pretty different than um, most people see love languages. Um, I think that we speak love languages in two forms. Um, first, in how we receive love, and then second, in how we express love. And the two are not always the same, and they're specifically not the same for me. Um, and so when you can understand and become aware of not only what you need to, in order to receive and understand or interpret love, um, and then also how you express love, um, to others, I think then you do a better job at picking a partner. So will you pick a partner based on love languages? That is part of the criteria for me. Absolutely. That's not, that's not everything. And it's not the sole um, criteria, but it is absolutely a part of it. Um, I think for me, having a partner whose expression of love is the same as my interpretation of love just makes things easier. Um, you know, Ayala Van Zandt, one of my favorite, favorite humans, um, said she was in a marriage for 14 years and frustrated because her husband wouldn't love her the way she felt like she needed to be loved. She said, and the lesson that she learned then was that she could not force him to love her the way that she needed to be loved, but she had to pay attention and learn how he loved and determine if the way that he loved would be suitable for her. And so that is why, to me, love languages are important both in how you interpret it, but also in how you express it. Because when you get with a person whose innate way of expressing love is not the way that you interpret or understand love, then you're going to find yourself in what I call unnecessary conflict within your relationship or within your marriage. So do you, do you add, like, how do you go about finding out 
what that love like? Do you ask or do you observe? Is it both? What? Um, it is both for me um, because some people think that again the way they interpret love and the way that they express love is the same. So I'll give you an example. For me, um, my love language for interpreting or receiving love, my top two are uh, physical touch and quality time. And I've taken the test multiple times over the years. And those two are literally one point away from each other. And then the other ones kind of fall way down the list. Um, not that I don't enjoy receiving gifts or acts of service or words of affirmation, but um, physical touch and quality time are, they're my top two. It's number one and letter A for me. But that's not what I innately do to express love to others. In expressing love to others, it's words of affirmation and it is acts of service and gift giving. Like those, those three things I love to do for other people. Like to watch a person, you know, smile because a gift I gave them or because I did something for them, like cook for them or to watch a person's, you know, uh, posture change when I am affirming them and speaking life into them. I love that. I don't need that for myself to under to feel like I'm loved. I need you to touch me and spend time with me. So um, those things are very important to understand about yourself so that when you get involved in, in a relationship with someone, um, you know how to identify what you need. And then also, you know how to identify what you have the capacity to give. Okay, let me let me say something about <laughs> the affection piece because I can honestly say I'm not a very affectionate person. It's something that I have to work at. Mm -hmm. But here's here's the thing, and I think this happens with pretty much every couple in the beginning. Um, affection is easy in the beginning because it's new. It's mm -hmm. exciting. You say uh-uh or uh -huh. I said uh-huh. Yes, okay. I'm agreeing. So it's so it's new and it's exciting in the beginning. The, and then the quality time piece, <clears throat> you know, it same thing. It's a new person. You you're getting to know them. It's fun. It's exciting. So it's easier to be affectionate. It's easier to spend that quality time with them. So how do you know that that's how that person really is like because there could be a point where they train they they go back to who they naturally are which is not the most affectionate person and maybe they don't maybe they don't give you the quality time that you need so um in observing people's behavior um i watched what they do when i am not um expressing affection, right? Um, and so because I interpret it as such and that's not the way that I express it, um, I may or may not initiate it, right? So I watch that. I watch how they are with other people. Um, quality time, are you creating time for me in your schedule, right? Uh, how are you creating time to spend time with me? Um, and so I pay attention to that stuff, even when it comes down to like the phone conversation or um, when we're going on dates, how long are the dates? What are we doing on the dates? Right. And so 
you just have to watch how a person manages their time. And this is, again, if quality time is your love language that you interpret it. Um, how are they with other people? How are they moving and shaking with people that, <clears throat> excuse me, are not in a romantic relationship with them? So you can watch how they operate and how they function outside of you and really gauge um, and really gauge that. So that's one way to do it. Um, and then you can have continual conversations about it and hope that the person that you're dealing with will be honest, right? So if a guy asks me like, hey, um, you know, are you uh, super affectionate? And I'm going to tell him yes, because that's the way like I receive love, right? I don't even <laughs> need you to touch me. As long as I can touch you, I'm going to, that's filling my love tank. Um, but I also need to know like, can he receive affection? Right. Because some guys, they don't necessarily like to be touched. Um, and so how he responds to my touch will tell me a lot. Um, I watch little things like how he shakes a person's hand when he in interacts with his homeboys or with his father or brothers or whatever. The people, you know, in his life that he loves, how does he show affection towards them? That lets me know his propensity to show affection towards me. Um, because like you said, in the beginning, everything that you say you want, you're going to get. Um, but they may or may not be able to keep up with that at the same level. Um, you know, as things kind of settle in and become the new normal. And you said you, you, said you observe how they shake hands. What is that? Like, give me, give me an example because I, I, I find that pretty interesting. So, um, you know, for most men, um, and I can only speak about my brothers, Okay. <laughs> the, the black men um depending on you know who the person is in their life some people they just just do a straight up handshake up down and done right mm -hmm. um but then sometimes they do up down hold it for maybe an extra second sometimes they do up down and, and a pull in for the hug right so just depending on how that how that works. I can't really explain it. Like, <laughs> no, no, I, you, no, you're doing good. You, okay. it, it, it's, it's clear. It's clear. Yeah. I'm super observant about how people do that. And even with the, the bro hug, right? Like where is the arm placement? How long is the embrace? Is he smiling while he's embracing or is he looking uncomfortable while he's embracing, but he's doing this because it's customary, because it's what we do as bros, right? So just kind of paying attention and observing body language um, lets me know a lot about a person and their level of affection. Yeah, that's a lot of observe. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of observing. But I mean, it sounds like it works. It does. <laughs> <laughs> I, and, then, and one thing I noticed too, like on your page, you you do you talk about relationships a lot. Um, is that a is that a comfortable conversation for you? Like, is it? Do you? Well, let me not, let me not say that. Not comfortable. Is that something you enjoy talking about? I love love. I wish everybody in the world could just be married happily in a healthy marriage and thriving to get, I, when I say I love love, I love love. I look forward to the day that I remarry. I am, yes, I love love. So I love all things relationships because at the end of the day, relationships are how we function and operate in the world. Um, and so I enjoy 
talking about romantic relationships, but also friendships and um, how we interact with people, even in our professional relationships. I am fascinated by humans and human behavior um, and love relationships are a major part of um, what I enjoy watching and experiencing. So, mm. well, let me, <clears throat> let me say this for myself. Um, <laughs> I'm like totally burnt out from relationship talk. And the reason I say that is because if you look most relationship talk on social media is not coming from a healthy place. It's, it's usually people are saying things because they want to debate and they want to argue. And it's not, it's not really informative. Like, especially, I'm, I mean, I'm going to just talk about Black people. Like, there seems to be like this gender war where men, men are trying to uh, defend themselves. Women are trying to defend themselves. Mm -hmm. We're constantly talking at each other, but not to each other. Yeah, so like, you've got to learn to sift through what you see on social media. A lot of times, everybody wants to go viral now, right? Everybody wants to, uh, you know, get their likes and views up. And so a lot of times people are saying things on social media for shock value um, and for the sake of sparking controversy um, for, you know, awareness of who they are. So um, in sifting through that, um, you're right. There are a lot of people that come from an unhealed place. It's why I'm in the work that I'm in. And like a funeral home, I will never be out of business. <laughs> and so, um, but people are definitely coming from an unhealthy place. And so um, it's sad, um, but it's the reality of kind of where we are in, in this mainstream kind of modern view of relationships in the world. Um, and so it is my endeavor to always um, spark conversation from a healthy place. Um, and so, you know, I want people to come together and like fall in love because when you build love relationships, that's where you build stronger communities and stronger communities build, you know, um, ultimately a stronger world. So, yeah. You, you talk about remarrying and you said with a lot of confidence and, and I'm sure you have a lot of faith that you will get remarried. If it doesn't happen, are you okay with that? No. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just be honest. No. Um, <laughs> and um, no, no, wait. Let me say this now so that it is not misconstrued. I love my life as it is now, right? Um, I am satisfied. I have a great job. I love the work that I get to do um, in ministry and um, in life. I have the freedom to do what I want to do. All my bills are paid. I live great. Um, and I'm, I'm a very happy person, right? So singleness is not something that is... Um, you know, an illness to me. I love my life as it is right now. And being married um, is just something that will give me a, a greater level of fulfillment because I'll be able to, to love on and pour into somebody else. That's really, I, I don't want to get married for what I can get out of it. I already love my life. I'm happy. 
I'm healed. I'm, I'm healthy. I'm whole. Like, I just want to be able to love on and pour into another person. Um, and, and I look forward to being able to do that. So singleness is not a bad thing. So I'm not desperate. I'm not out here, you know, jumping on the first thing, moving. No, not at all. But I love love so much. Um, and I love what it feels like to have someone as the object of my affection and object of my love. And so um, definitely looking forward to that. Um, and if it doesn't happen, me and God have um, some talking to do. <laughs> a couple of conversations, okay. <laughs> do you actually, um, are you actually dating? or Like, do you date or... Yes, um, I am dating um, right now, and um, I'm having fun with it. Um, so in 2022, I probably went on, I can't even count the number of dates that I went on. I had a great time. So, and that's the thing, like my approach to dating is not um, the traditional approach to dating. Um, I approach dating with a full understanding that 99.999% of the men that I date are not my husband. Right. But I'll never know that unless I date them, which is collecting data. I didn't say sleep with them. I said date them. And there's a difference. Dating does not equate to having sex with them. And so um, because I love humans and so dating for me is fun. And But I never become emotionally involved um, with a person until I'm ready to move to that level with them. So um, a lot of times women will go into dating and fall in love and have a whole wedding in their head with the person after the first date. And that's just crazy to me. So no, I don't approach dating like that. I don't become emotionally attached or emotionally involved at all. It is strictly platonic until it's not. And so um, that's why I'm able to enjoy dating. So a lot of women find themselves exhausted. Oh, I'm tired of dating. No, I don't get tired. I, I'm having a good time. <laughs> are you, so are you old school where the man have to approach you or you you would approach a man? Uh, I'm not shooting my shot. Uh, there's no bullets in the gun, sir. I'm not shooting nothing. <laughs> he has to. <laughs> he has to approach me. Now, I may, may, may and that's a heavy may drop the white handkerchief you know to to at least be seen but i'm not shooting no shot absolutely not <laughs> i can't do it my grandmother would turn over in her grave absolutely <laughs> not <laughs> so, so what you what you say to the new age woman that's like uh-uh girl you gotta go get that man <laughs> What? I am clutching my pearls right now. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Just no. <laughs> mm -mm. No, I, I, um, I don't have any issues with attracting um, men, so I don't have to shoot my shot. So... Yeah. Oh, okay. That's, 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 <laughs> that's, 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 uh, it's, it's just... Um, Things have just changed. That's, they have. Um, that's really what it boils down to. Things have changed. So, um, well, you know, look, <laughs> it's, it's 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 dating is um, it's a dare, it's a, whew. 
Things have changed. That's all I can say. <laughs> they have changed, but I think that there are still quality men and quality women out here. Like you hear so many people say, oh, it's pee in the dating pool. I don't know what dating pool these people are dating in. But again, I'm all things the soul, right? What you're experiencing in your life is a direct reflection of you. No one else. If it's pee in the dating pool, it's because you peed in it. Mm. And then wait a minute, you, you sure you want to keep this in the um, podcast? Because that's going to get a lot of pushback. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm time enough for it. <laughs> but it, really it is. Like people's experience in dating is 1000% about them. You attract to yourself who you are. And so if you're not attracting quality people, then it's time to do a soul check mm. because there's something in you that they have in common, which is why they came. Right. And so, um, because I maintain my internal health, my soul health, I don't have a problem with meeting quality men at all. That's good. That are marriage minded men. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, again, if it's pee in the dating pool, it's because you you pee in it. So mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm gonna close with this. Um, we we started. We were talking about like you being a teenager, hating God, on the run, not wanting to do anything with church, just in a completely dark space. And now yet yeah, you seem to be in a great space, happy, great career, things are thriving. Now that you're in this place, can you just think about like back then? Could you even imagine? Because that's that's the hardest part. Could you even just imagine being in the space you are in today? Um, I honestly couldn't. Um, I couldn't fathom that my life would turn out. <laughs> wow, I'm getting emotional. Um, I couldn't fathom then that my life would turn out the way that it is now. I love my life. I live a beautiful life. I have a beautiful life experience and I am grateful um, for where I am. But in that dark place, um, it was not until I got tired of myself. I literally got sick of myself before I made that change. And so now, um, the life that I live now and the way that I approach and deal with people now is through a lens of love and grace. And it is the love and grace that I wished someone would have extended to me when I was in my dark place. And so, no, I could not imagine then. But now, being where I am now, I can never imagine going back to that dark place ever. Wow. Listen, I want to thank you for um, sitting down and taking the time to do this. Um, excuse me. It's just been an honor and a pleasure talking with you because you've been so transparent about where you've been and where you're at now. And I want to congratulate you for doing the work because, man, that's a lot of work you had to do to get where you at. So I have to congratulate you for that. And I'm, and I'm sure you thank God and I thank God for where you're at today. So it's really inspiring um, to know that you developed into the woman you have. 
Wow, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Um, it was hard work, but it was worthy work. And it is work that I would do all over again if I had to. Now, before we end this, um, please tell the people like how they could follow you. Um, I don't know, you, you, I think you said you wrote a book, how they can get your book, um, plug all your information. Oh, awesome. Thank you for the opportunity. So um, you can find me on social media um, at I am Kelly Ware and Kelly is spelled K-E-L-L-I, last name Ware, W-A-R-E. So all things social media is I am Kelly Ware. My book is called From Horrible to Whole and that is spelled W-H-O-R-E-R-I-B-L-E to Whole. Um, and it is available on Amazon. If you search my name, um, my book will come up. And so, um, yeah, please don't hesitate to reach out to me, to connect with me if you need to talk about soul healing. Um, that is uh, my passion, my purpose, um, and my posture in life. And so um, I look forward to discussing that with anybody that wants to reach out. Um, and I am working on my third book, uh, which will be out in 2023. So I'm excited about that. Um, and so be on the lookout for that. And perhaps I can come back again um, as a guest on your show to talk about that. Of course, of course, of course. You just gotta, you just gotta let me know when you're ready, and, and I'll make sure to put, you, put you, um, put you down, and we could do it again. Sounds good. Thank you so much, uh, James. I appreciate it. Thank you, and again, congratulations for everything you've done and everything you will do. And I wish you all the best moving forward. Awesome. Thanks. I want to take the time to thank everyone for listening to the podcast. I truly appreciate your support. You can follow me on Instagram at conversations underscore with underscore Lamp. My Facebook is also conversations with Lamp. You can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. And thank you all for listening. Have a great day.